0: Greenhouse lessons trying to save the day. Today, we're totally pumped to have Jamie Carpenter, a program specialist with the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection and the Green Acres Program, which has protected over half a million acres of open space and provided hundreds of outdoor recreational facilities and communities around the state. Previously, Jamie worked
1: for the state in New Jersey around Hurricane Sandy recovery. Jamie has a wealth of experiences from working to protect the Amazon in Brazil, conservation work in Alaska, advocating for a more sustainable New York City, to an AmeriCorps service year at a domestic violence shelter in Oregon. Jamie, welcome to Greenhouse Lasses.
2: Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thanks for being here, Jamie. Yeah. So we already gave a bit of your professional background, but let's unpack you for a minute. How do you define
2: yourself? What's your personal background? Okay, well, I'm from North Jersey, grew up, you know, doing outdoorsy things with my dad a little bit like camping and hiking. Um, And I really like the outdoors. Um, So after college, I had no idea what I wanted to do at all. And I started looking around for some kind of jobs that caught my interest. And I signed up for AmeriCorps. And I really like those because they're short term contract job so I could kind of get a little taste of something and if it wasn't for me it wasn't the end of the world. I think I'm a little bit scared of commitment. Um, So my first one there was Alaska doing conservation work Um, and then after that I signed up again for a different program in Oregon at the domestic violence shelter and after that that led to a year volunteering in the Amazon with like a sister organization of theirs. And after that, grad school, where I met some amazing people who (laughs) cared about the environment and sustainability. Um, And after that, I was pretty lucky in finding a job working for the state of New Jersey back home. Um, After all my travels, glamorous Trenton really just caught my eye, I suppose. And I've been down there ever since. And I was working in Sandy Recovery, like you said, first. And then I transitioned into... um, a permanent position with a Green Acres program doing land conservation.
0: Awesome. And also a fun fact that Jamie can save your life if you're swimming and <laughs> get, have a problem out on the beach because you spent
2: a lot of time as a lifeguard, right, in New Jersey? Oh, geez. Yes. Um, too many hours. Um, I lifeguarded pretty much all through high school and college, uh, back home at the lake in the summer and then at school during the school year. So. Yeah, if you start choking, I can heimlich the heck out of you. Just a real-life Baywatch. No epic rescues, though. Mostly (laughs) picking up toddlers who fall face down and aren't big enough to stand up.
1: Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Well, I feel like that's quite a list. You know, and and I do like the idea of having these uh, programs available like AmeriCorps that allow you to engage in a diverse set of activities and really understand what it is that you want to do. So Brazil's been in the media quite a bit uh, because of the fires in the Amazon, it's taken a lot of attention and people are looking at it as a... both an issue of exploitation of natural resources and logging, and some people are tying it back to um, the politics of Brazil right now um, and and you know, there's, there's a lot that's going on environmentally, um, but there's also like a huge uh, people aspect to it and and the indigenous communities that are in the front lines of these fires that are dealing with the consequences. So let's talk about your, your time in Brazil and and what you did there.
2: Okay. Um, I worked with some local communities um, in
1: rural areas.
2: I wasn't permitted to work with any of the indigenous populations. And actually I had a sign like, some paperwork declaring that I would not talk to any indigenous folks. Um, I don't know if it was for their preservation or because the government didn't want me getting involved in them. I'm not entirely sure, but that was a requirement for me to get mm. my visa. Hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm sure it's, it's probably like a protective effort, or I'd like to think that, I don't know.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, I would hope so, but it's not always the case with right. government having the best interests of the people. Right. Um, and it, there is, a bit of corruption in Brazil. I mean, there's corruption in every government, but we, we got to see some of that. So I spent the first couple months um, on the small town in the northeast coast of Brazil. And it's this little um, community where they started a, a co-op. And up until pretty recently, they still had indentured servitude happening in that region. Um, it wasn't legal. On paper, it didn't really exist, but it was kind of the law of the land. So a lot of these people were first-generation landowners and can work for themselves. And they all kind of gathered together, and this is a really cool move to form their co-op. And one of their main sources of income was to harvest the seaweed from the ocean. And um, they process it at the beginning stages, and they'd sell it down to a distributor down in Sao Paulo in the South Um, and they would use it, you know, for shampoo and all kinds of cosmetics as an ingredient and they'd refine it more. Um, So they were actually making like their own money for the first time and it was such a cool place to be. Um, Everybody was pretty involved. Everybody knew each other. Um, It's a very cool little town. Uh, And then the rest of my year I spent uh, inside the Amazon, we had a house based um, in the state of Pará, but then I'd also go off to like little farms kind of scattered all over this, the, the state, um, working with different people. Um, and there was some, I think with any of these international volunteering, there's a little bit of English teaching, no matter what you do, whether it's kids <laughs> or adults, And I did a touch of both. Although I had um, a really cool exchange where the English teacher at the high school would tutor me in Portuguese, and then i come into her English class and help the kids with English. So it was a lot of exposure and really, really cool. Um, and then, you know, the organization I was with, it was the Notre Dame Mission Volunteers based out of Baltimore. Um, but then they have a few uh, programs scattered around the U.S. and a couple international. And they're there. It was run by nuns, Catholic nuns. And they're the coolest people I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. (laughs) Um, they're all about just living the gospel. Like we're here to help each other. Like, I'm not sure how many of your listeners are into the gospels, but gospel Luke in particular, we're like, give up everything, go help the poor, go help those in need, do what you can to make the world better. And that was all these ladies, um, some of them marched with Dr. King back in the day and got arrested at sit-ins. Um, oh. it's, it was mostly older women, at least um, the American women. There's some younger ladies who were Brazilian in the congregation and scattered around uh, different parts of Brazil. Yeah, that's awesome. That's what um,
0: religious activism should be about, <laughs> about actually being stewards to the earth and helping other people. That's great.
2: Oh yeah, they were hundred percent about environmental justice. They're trying to ensure that it's not just that 1% who profits off of destroying the environment. And meanwhile, all the poor in the surrounding area have to suffer the consequences of contaminated water, or air, um, unable to grow their own crops. Um, you know, all that traditional environmental justice, fun
1: stuff that we've talked about before. So, what did your day to day look like? I know you you kind of mentioned some of what that uh, community was doing and the people that you were with, but what was your day to day like when you were there?
2: There was no real day to day. Some of it felt a little discombobulating. Um, I'm used to a much more organized structure, so going out there was a whole different change of pace, change of lifestyle. Um, it took me a little bit to get adjusted, um, and even with that, we kind of would just see where the day took us. Um, overall their purpose, uh, in Brazil was to try to empower the people, but without imposing our own American values on them. So if somebody were to come up and say, Hey, you know, I feel like I'm being discriminated against, or, um, maybe a big cal- cattle rancher came and took my land and they forced me off of it at gunpoint. Um, you know, I think, you know, a lot of us would have the reaction that's messed up we should go fix this, Um, you know, trying to stand up for ourselves kind of a thing. Um, But we had to, you know, take a beat and see what they wanted to do. Are they coming, looking for resources to go somewhere else? Are they going to want to try and reclaim their land and fight it? So have them come to their own conclusion Mm -hmm. as to what they want to do and what course of action they want to pursue. And then try to give them some tools and means to go about that with where we were, um and there's a lot of uh not a lot of wealth and it, you know like you see in the US where there's the 1% and the 99% it's even more drastic down there so that uh there are some people who have a ton of money like the cattle ranchers it's kind of like the wild west um where they just do what they want uh, i've heard some stories of some documents whether in the courts or in other parts of town municipalities disappearing or being destroyed and then there's no record of what it was and they just kind of call dibs and they have enough money to grease the wheels and maybe ammunition and they just plow through so there's a lot of people being taken advantage of and so we would try to work with them and see what they'd like to do. Yeah,
0: I think that's that's an important distinction. <laughs> and it's hard. We've talked about that before about how you want to help empower and enable people within an area that you're serving or volunteering in without inflicting your own values on it. But I think the not just yeah, the, the indigenous women and all of the activists around Brazil have just been absolutely phenomenal to watch, especially with the influx of fires that have been happening. There's an activist named rayanne christine maximo franca who i think she's like 25 she's really young and she's she's like uh, if you haven't read about her or heard about her please look her up maybe we should start sharing like <laughs> badass women that are helping save the environment or something as our social media this is a, a note for myself to think about but she says, um, women from the Amazon have been echoing a strong urge to act against the fast-tracked consumerist needs that do not respect our lands, our culture, or our rights. And I think that's a really powerful statement to make in the midst of so many activists being killed in Brazil and around the world right now. And for her to be, and many other women, to be standing up and fighting in the way that works for them is pretty incredible.
2: So, yeah, actually, with our organization, uh, the Notre Dame Mission Volunteers, one of the nuns, who was an older lady um, from the U.S., who got gunned down in the street, just walking to a group meeting one afternoon. Uh, The story goes that it was two hired gunmen from uh, hired by one of the local ranchers who didn't like the people asserting themselves and trying to stand up for themselves and keep their land because he wanted their land um and then immediately after the shooting they fled he had um i think a small plane uh but he flew them to the south like you know a few uh states away so they were just immediately out of the area no no huge investigation no huge attempt to try to find her killers everyone in the community knew what happened afterwards of course not I'm sure they would have risen up had they known it was coming um hmm. but yeah everyone knows exactly what happened and this poor old lady who gave her so much you know gave her life there and she was holding her bible and everything it was it was very sad sister dorothy dorothy Stag. yeah
0: i'm really sorry to hear that and i know that happens to a lot of people and we don't talk about it because so it happens so often it's hard to keep up with how <laughs> awful the situations are there and other places in the world yeah and
2: there are there's violence and there's shootings and streets all the time sometimes it's pettier things sometimes it's a big political move um but it's not uncommon in brazil and they the the wealthy just assert themselves it always reminded me of that line from you know the movie aladdin or um Have you heard of the golden rule? Whoever has the gold makes the rules. And that's how it is.
0: We can talk about this in Brazil all day, but I'm going to kind of shift the topic back to talking about your conservation work in Alaska. Tell us about the projects you did and what your experience was like.
2: So I was with this program called Saga and um, they were based in Juno and it was a bunch of um i don't know it kind of had an island of misfit toys to it a lot of you know young adults um out of college not everybody went to college though but you know college age kids um and there's maybe oh gosh I don't remember exact numbers let's say 6 to 8 teams of 6 to 8 people per team um and we just had, um, higher jobs around the state that we would do. And sometimes the different teams would pair up and do something big together. And sometimes it would just be you and the five other people on your team for three or four weeks out in the middle of nowhere. Um, but we worked with a whole bunch of different organizations with the state doing some invasive species removal, um, trail work. stream restoration um and sometimes we were in the cities like homer or anchorage or Juneau, and then sometimes we'd be like had to take some ferries and some teeny tiny little biplanes to get dropped off in the middle of the woods uh there was one time we had to go fly out somewhere and it took three plane trips because we could only fit like three crew members in the plane and we had like a little bit of weight that we can have for our supplies. So we're there at um, the airport hangar pulling out our bag, seeing what we can let go because we were over the weight capacity. Oh. So um, I think we ended up tossing mostly the veggies in our oh. um, food supply bag because they would have gone bad. And so <laughs> we lived off a of pancake mix for a lot because that's oh something gosh. small that we could carry with us wouldn't expire um so with peanut butter and jelly you know a little pancakes for breakfast and dinner sometimes although on the plus side um the salmon were running while we were there and we caught so much fish and it was so fresh and delicious so it was pancakes and salmon most of the time (laughs) wow that's hearty oh yeah (laughs) Uh. It was a big treat coming back into town, no matter what the town was, and taking a shower and <laughs> having anything to eat. <laughs> it was awesome. And that's when I was like, I'd like to be involved in something that's protecting the environment. I'm not sure exactly what it is. Hopefully, I'll know it when I see it. But
1: I like this kind of stuff. So I started looking from at different things from there. What was the conversation around climate change when you were there?
2: Oh gosh, you know, honestly, I don't know if it came up all that much. Um, and it might've been maybe 50, 50 split between people who you know went to undergrad and had some kind of degrees, maybe in something environmental related, maybe completely unrelated. Um, and then other people who went to high school and worked some part-time job. Um, so you had all, all different types of people coming from all kinds of backgrounds. So we had people from all over the U.S. I think there was one guy who was from Alaska, but everybody else was scattered around the 50 states, all kinds of backgrounds, various levels of education. Um, we had some discussions on climate, and but there was no consensus, you know, whatever your background and was, and some people weren't that interested in it. Some people just kind of wanted to be out in Alaska, making a go of it, and then go back home and do something else and not necessarily were there for that reason.
1: Yeah, no, that's interesting. I wanted to ask just because... You,
2: yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, it, it's an it wasn't area that... not that long ago.
1: Right, right. Um, and it's also, like, you know, an area that will maybe see um, these changes much more quickly than other areas. So it's just interesting that's sometimes true. to think about that. But, you know, oftentimes I feel like th- this comes up in the conversation. Just because you see a change in climate doesn't mean that you believe in man-made climate change, so... That's true. And
2: I I actually, um, to go slightly off topic, when I, uh, for grad school interned at this group in New York, um, I interviewed this one guy who was researching climate change and he like rode his bike all over Southeast Asia and would just interviewed almost everybody. He came across a lot of like rural farmers and a lot of these people, some of them had never heard of climate change. Some of them heard of it, but didn't believe in it. However, every single one of them were like, you know, it's the strangest thing in the past, like 20 years or so. Like I've noticed some changes, you know, Mm -hmm. and you know,
0: Mm.
2: like older folks talking about like 70 years ago when their fathers and grandfathers worked the land, how it was not their whole childhoods. And now it's different. So even though they didn't reconcile that with climate change, they're all describing the same thing. And I thought that was so interesting that it is like a, a hot topic or like a dirty word or has some stigma to it, but still everybody's talking about the same thing without realizing it.
1: So, yeah, let's, let's move into your work with the state of New Jersey. Um, you started off with the Blue Acres program, um, and Hurricane Sandy relief, uh, So before we get into what you're doing now, tell us about uh, what that was like.
2: Okay, I worked for this really awesome program called Blue Acres, um, and that's a disaster recovery program within the state. Um, And there's, I mean, a multitude of different programs to approach it in a lot of different ways. Um, I worked on some other ones, but Blue Acres is where I spent the most of my time by far. And so what they do is they would purchase um, primary residences homes that were in the flood area um, give the homeowner fair market value um, and then they you know the homeowners would move out they demolish the house level the land um, and that was as a means to protect against future flooding and get people out from an unsafe area where they really shouldn't have been in the first place um, although there are some cases where, there's homes that for you know years and years were fine never had floods and then like in Houston I as you've seen Leslie over development comes in maybe they're slightly lower grade than somewhere else where they had a huge influx of development and now these homes are getting flooded
0: yeah that was going to be my next question actually is that homes that had never flooded in Houston were flooded and people lost their homes and cars and all their valuables and it was troubling because most of them didn't have flood insurance they weren't required to have flood insurance it's more expensive to get flood insurance if you don't have your house on the flood map like i think it's important to talk about how our flood maps just do not reflect this new normal either from overdevelopment or from climate change or from our new normal of these intense more frequent storms it's it's going to cause a lot more of these Hurricane Sandy's and Hurricane Harvey's for sure.
2: Absolutely. And I know, I believe FEMA's really trying to update all the flood maps, but the thing is, it's changing as they're doing it, and it's a huge responsibility, and I feel like it's just so much area to cover, and the size of their staff, they're working on it, but it's going to take a while to update, and by the time they finish your area and then go do the whole rest of the country, your area is going to need an update again.
0: That's terrifying.
2: Yeah, it is. And there's still flooding in the Midwest where you wouldn't expect it along the Mississippi or the Missouri
0: mm-hmm.
2: and places that I would not anticipate having like a huge surge of flooding and people losing their homes where it really hasn't happened before. Um, but they are and they're starting similar programs to help these folks and get them out of the way of the floodwaters where they are now.
0: That's That's progress. <laughs> Even if it's progress because things are getting worse. But maybe let's let's talk back about New Jersey in particular. You mentioned before when we last talked that New Jersey is the most densely populated state, and Hurricane Sandy caused sixty two billion billion dollars in damage just in the US, it was even more in the Caribbean. And it left seven point five million people without power, which is huge. Like I know we talk about Harvey and Katrina and all these other hurricanes a lot, but I think Sandy is particularly difficult because it was such a densely populated area that affected people and I know that is why you had this job for so long working with hurricane sandy relief really. so what what was it like having to figure out how to help
2: all of these people for so long after the hurricane um, and it hit the whole area like I know New York has sandy recovery going on um it's not just us by any means but yeah there's um you do your best to try and figure out, with the federal grants that you receive, how you're gonna disperse them, what areas are in the most need, Um, because it can go anywhere. There's a lot of people who need a lot of help trying to find the fair way to do it. Um, I know for our program, we focused on primary residence, whether it was owner occupied or if it was a rental unit. So we weren't purchasing vacation homes or second homes because there's not a person living there in imminent danger We had to focus on getting people out who had no place else to go. So you'll get sometimes, you know, a phone call of somebody saying, oh, my vacation house is flooding. I want you guys to buy us out. It's like, no, we have to choose to spend our funds on helping people more in need. After Sandy, we got a lot of grants coming in to help focus on that. But Blue Acres did exist prior to Hurricane Sandy in um, repetitive flooding areas. So even like along streams or rivers or any place that was already getting hit hard and repeatedly flooding um so we still do some of that it's not 100% sandy related um and they're just trying to help where there's a need yeah and John Oliver I know did a, a special on his show one time about flooding and I think he broke it down really well um especially if you look at the flood insurance program on the national level um they spend billions i mean some of these homes get flooded all the time um, and sometimes in very wealthy areas. So the homes are worth a lot and they just get flooded and they get their flood insurance and your taxes go towards this. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if you actually look at it, it's so much cheaper for the government to buy a property, demolish the house, leave it as open space. um, And we do put that into the deed and the um, and we would do put a restriction on the property that it can't be developed again
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, so you may you have this payout one time but you're not doing this ever again and I know John Oliver I forget the numbers he had but he looked at a couple homes in particular uh, not in New Jersey um, somewhere maybe Florida or so and showed the amount of money this homeowner got year after year after year and like over the course of like maybe up to 30 years how much money we spent. And if we just bought it instead and demolished it and this guy moved somewhere else, it would save taxpayer dollars.
1: All right. So what about the green acres program? I know that focuses more on parks and wildlife and stewardship. So tell us more about what you're doing now. Okay. Well, Green Acres is also a really cool
2: program. I feel so lucky that I got into there. Um, And they've got a couple different sides to the program. Um, The first part is state land acquisition. So similar to Blue Acres, they purchase property, leave it open. um, And not necessarily just for flooding reasons, but maybe um, there's an an ecologically sensitive species, flora or fauna, um, that's there. Maybe... It's a community that is densely populated and really needs some open space. Um, So maybe they'll have a park there or just something green. Um, So another part of Green Acres is the local program where they work with towns and nonprofits and help fund parks. It's bigger in our more densely populated regions, so outside New York City, outside of Philly, um where it's really really densely populated. Um, we try to invest in some open space um, and they can have parks, they could have ball fields, they could have um, a pond for fishing, whatever it is, um, try to keep them green and also, you know for the animals and for the plants and everything you want to have a wildlife corridor. Um, sometimes we aim to try and connect some regions so, it's not just about us as people, but about everybody that's living in our little bubble.
0: So so, <laughs> so, which Parks
2: and Rec character are you? Oh, gosh. <laughs> At times, all of them. Uh, and I tried to ask the people when I started working there, if anybody watched that show, because I thought it seemed appropriate. And I've been a big fan for a long time, um, but... The people I've talked to so far haven't really been into it. I don't know if they were, I mean, a lot of them have been their lifers, you know, much longer than me. So if you're already working in a field and the show comes out, maybe you're like, ah, they don't know what they're talking about. It doesn't catch your interest (laughs) the way that just um, Amy Poehler appeals
1: to me in general. (laughs) She's amazing. Yeah. I feel like you're a mix between, oh, sorry. Go, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I feel like you're kind of a mix between April, Andy, and, is his name Ron? Yeah, Ron. Yes, yes. All three of those characters, if they had a baby. With a little bit of Amy (laughs) Poehler, too. It's like, your sarcasm – yeah, your sarcasm and then, like, your playfulness of Andy. It's like, okay, yeah, the sarcasm of April, the playfulness <laughs> of Andy, and then the, like, cynicism of Ron with the spirited, do-good attitude of Leslie Nope.
2: <laughs> oh, Phoebe, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I just came yeah. up with and that on the spot,
1: so –
0: <laughs> good job yeah well played
2: there's definitely a little bit of the april that comes out um especially you know aside from career development i've worked a lot of different part-time jobs a lot of customer service um and my one of my supervisors now she's always like take a beat big smile we are the state we we go high we don't go low even if they're low <laughs> you know so like in my head i feel kind of april if anything ever annoys me which I'm Irish I get annoyed at everything I'm angry every (laughs) time you know but I gotta be like okay I need that Amy Poehler Leslie Note influence of (laughs) everything's great
0: (laughs) yeah that's that's the thing I like about that show is everyone has their own arc and difficulties but they all grow and they grow by helping connect people in Pawnee who like kind of hate them and hate the government but they help them get outside and appreciate their community and they they do wonderful things for for where they live even if they're not always gracious for that so i think that's cool that you're helping create more parks and helping get kids outside especially in the urban areas where they might not have experience with nature that's so important especially if they're going to be our climate justice warriors pretty soon
2: oh heck yeah and i do feel also lucky a lot of people do like the Green Acres program. Um, We get a lot of feedback and a lot of positive feedback. Um, I volunteered a couple of weekends ago at this um, uh, fish and wildlife sponsor, this outdoor expo. And we had a little green acres booth. Um, And they actually had, you know, fun things for people like archery and kayaking. And we were there with our little informational table, but so many people came by and were like, green acres, you guys have a park in my neighborhood. You're awesome. And then other people would be like, Oh, green acres, you kept this property that has the, um, Endangered bat species. That's awesome. So Aww. so many people were so happy. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of people who have no idea what it is. But most of the feedback is good. So that makes it a whole lot easier. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's and so most of the people that we work with are awesome. I'm so glad that you're getting to do a job that's like helping the world, working for the government, getting good feedback. It's like power to the people. Um, what about... So a lot of states uh, have been implementing uh, climate plans, right? Uh, so has New Jersey done this on a state level? Um, you know, obviously, like cities are, are doing it, but there's there's some states that are releasing kind of their own carbon neutrality goals, their own climate uh, action plans. Is that going on in New Jersey?
2: Um,
1: absolutely. Um, we've got the new governor, Phil Murphy,
2: and He's, he's liberal. He's pushing for a good environment, good envir- environmental initiatives. Um, they just did a bid for um, offshore energy um, off the kind of by Atlantic City area. And he wants to go more towards renewable energies for New Jersey. Um, and then, you know, the DEP has a, so many different programs and divisions within it. Um, some of them are focusing on climate in particular. Um, our commissioner is also super progressive. Um, I forget which one exactly, but uh, the Trump administration did one thing or another that was bad environmentally, at least according to people who know anything about the environment. Um, but it's hard to remember which one of many. Um, <laughs> the commissioner came out with a statement, like a little press release. Um, and it just kind of said, we're, we're going to go ahead and do exactly what we're doing and double down even harder, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I forget the exact words. I don't want to quote Commissioner McKay, but very cool, very progressive. They're definitely ignoring whatever the federal government's doing and just going to go ahead and take care of their own, do what they know is right.
0: Haas. Yeah, the state of California is like straight up suing Donald Trump and he's suing us back. It's kind of ridiculous. (laughs) The state
2: versus federal struggle right now. I saw that. We're not in lawsuit territory, but we're just like... We acknowledge what you said with your regulations and we're going to keep our stricter, more, reg- you know, more strict regulations.
0: Yes, go New Jersey. I think I read you're trying to be a hundred percent renewable energy by a certain timeline and maybe it's 50% by 2030. I read this a while ago, but pretty
2: incredible goals for a state to be saying that. Oh gosh. Um, I want to say he wanted to be, Either 50 or 100% by 2030 or 50. Gosh, okay. I get numbers in my head and then I immediately forget them. (laughs) But yeah, he does have super goals and this whole offshore wind energy that they're pursuing now
1: um, that should really help, that should power most of it. I always love hearing how just depending on geography, different cities are, you know, like there, there's no such thing as like one umbrella climate action plan because, you know, you've got some cities that are by the coast that are going to be dealing with um, just the effects of sea level rise. And then like in your case, you have the, the opportunity of offshore wind. Um, Texas and California have a vast amount of land. So there's, there's a lot for like utility scale solar, obviously a lot of opportunity for wind as well. Um, and then, you know, you've got other areas that focus on hydropower and, like, geothermal. And so it's great to see that um, there there's a creative suite of solutions depending on um, the geography of, of the area that you're at. So um, super cool that New Jersey is doing things. Uh, you know, maybe Texas will one day, too, <laughs> post-2020.
2: Yeah. You have a lot of really cool progressive liberals in Texas. You just – gotta
0: take over a little bit more so jamie you've had a really impressive and impactful career path comprised of activism public service uh, you always seem to find time to volunteer even though you're basically always been working at least two jobs since i've known you and that's some in- pretty incredible drive. What advice do you have to our listeners who might be struggling to maintain a sense of drive and purpose, especially considering the skyrocketing cost of living, the student debt crisis to which you just paid off your student loans, right? And there's injustices in every form. What, what do you say to our listeners?
2: Oh, gosh, I feel like I'm the last person to give anyone advice. <laughs> 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 um, I've always had the mindset of, you know, one way or another, things will be all right in the end. So even if there's some rough patches, try to have that goal in mind. Um, and, you know, I, I'm so lucky to be where I am now and have the job I have. Um, but, you know, coming out of grad school, I think I applied for like 400 jobs. Um, a yeah. lot of them I never even heard back from at all. Um, some interviews, and sometimes after an interview, they don't call you at all, not even to say no thanks. Um, so it took a while to get into a, like a permanent position, you know. Yeah, even with Blue Acres, that was on a grant that would expire in a couple of years, and it was just a temporary position. Um, yeah, and just working hard at other part-time jobs to keep paying bills. Um, I know it's really hard. Um, but if you just kind of focus on it and do it and also try to have that, you know, only bite off one thing at a time, maybe that's contradictory, (laughs) you know, have your, have your big picture, but also, you know, take it in stride, do what you can and do what you can again tomorrow and things will work out in the end.
0: Amazing. Yeah. That's great advice. (laughs) I think you should always give people advice. (laughs)
2: Well, Jamie, over here.
0: I don't know. I think I think it makes sense. You should always keep your your end goal in mind and have goals for yourself. Because if you try to do it only one day at a time, it seems like you're not getting anywhere. But if you do it only with big goals, it seems too far away. So looking at something every day and taking it every day at a time with the mindset of where you're trying to head, like mm-hmm. that makes
2: sense to me. Yeah. Although I think to be fair. I didn't have like one certain goal. Like my goal was to get a decent job and be able to pay my bills like and and get (laughs) a job in the field I want to work in. Because I know people who, you know, have advanced degrees and are waitressing or working other jobs, not at all in the field of study, not at all in what they wanted to do. Like my goal was just kind of a loose, I wanted to do something with the environment, you know, and, you know, one thing led to another. And I kept working, um, seeing what people I could meet and what, where that would lead to like, who knew that when I signed up for AmeriCorps in Alaska and got interested in the the environment, that would be this whole long windy road and taking it back to Jersey, but working in the environmental field doing conservation. Like I never would have foreseen that, especially with all the places I've been in between, but I just had that goal and worked for it and ended up
1: here and pretty happy.
0: (laughs) That's badass. Thanks, Jamie.
1: Inspiring. And I think it's also good for people to hear that, like, you don't just apply to a handful of jobs and stuff just works out all the time. (laughs) Like we all like, yeah, hundreds and hundreds of, of applications and rejections and all of these things later, people finally find something that they're passionate about and that's okay. And it takes longer for others and you know, there's no specific timeline. I think that's always my big advice with, like, young people. I'm just, like, don't create a, an imaginary timeline based on whatever you think you're supposed to be doing. Uh, make sure that you take the time to figure it out, you know, to figure out what your passions are, to experiment, to do different things. Like, you don't need to, to live by the guidelines of, of some imaginary timelines that maybe we've been told we need to follow absolutely Um,
2: yeah maybe in our parents
1: generation but in grandparents but
2: that's not how it is today you got to have patience yeah (laughs) yeah
0: we're living in a a different time yeah with a diverse skill set and different perspectives because I feel like our parents are like subject matter experts and my parents parents were really good at one thing but our generation has a very diverse skill set and we are working on sustainability through a lot of different lenses and that's what this podcast is about is that everything is related and to climate and everything is yeah, interrelated so it's cool there's a lot of ways to get to where you want to
2: go that's for sure
1: Let's get into this joy. Um, we always say it's tough to talk about climate. It's tough to think about everything that's going on. It's tough to think about the fossil fuel industry and uh, corporate greed and disasters and melting ice caps and injustice uh, everywhere and impunity. But um, it's, it's nice to also end on a positive note and think about some things that we're fighting for things that keep us going. Um, so what's something positive or joyful that that's happened to you, um, or something that you've read or seen that, that you'd like to share with us? Oh, wow. Um, nothing deep comes to
0: mind. (laughs) (laughs) It's cool. It's cool.
1: I think
2: just my most recent, you know, moment of joy is I let myself go out last night, even though I worked hard all week and I was pretty exhausted. Um, but I went to a ska show with some friends and saw a couple (laughs) of really cool bands play. Um, And it, you know, I don't think last summer I went to any concerts at all whatsoever. So this year I was like, do you know what? Like I work so hard. I need to actually take those nights and have fun and do what makes me happy and remember what this is all for. So like live a good balanced life. Um, So last night was one of those occasions where I got to go out and, you know, bop around and dance and hear some amazing bands and be with some good people and just have fun. Awesome. Did you skank? Um, I did a little bit. Um, (laughs) I want to say I'm not that great at it, but also I feel like most people are not that great of it. It's part of the definition of skanking perhaps, (laughs) Um, but we had fun, you know, you're just moving to the music and you're not really caring what other people are saying, but, and no, Anyone at a show would never naysay anybody else. Like, it's always very happy, very cool people <laughs> who are just kind of there to support the music and are not judging each other.
0: Yeah, good vibes only.
1: It took me a second. I was like, what's skanking? <laughs> 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 then you were like, ska. Uh, and I was like, oh, yes, yes, yes. Yes. I think I know skanking what skanking is. is the name
2: for dancing to ska music. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, i love it um what about you
0: leslie so when we're recording this during the climate action strike and on friday i i attended uh, my climate action strike in san jose california i was really active in houston um with the showing up for racial justice Uh, organization and the Black Lives Matter Houston, I liked showing up to to rallies and protests. But in San Jose, I haven't really found my place yet. A lot of the activities go on in Oakland and San Francisco, and San Jose is kind of like an hour away, and it's, it's a little different of a scene here. So I didn't realize there was even a climate action strike, but one of my coworkers was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go over there. So I went home and I rode my bike and there was a lot of people and it was a lot of like classes of kids and their teachers and lots of college kids and lots of retired people and lots of typical California hippies. There was I saw people from a Jewish community in Los Gatos. There was all kinds of people there. And it was just so exciting to see so many people come together for our generation and future generations and the generation that's growing up right now and has to live in this crap hole that we're (laughs) inheriting for them. Um, It was really incredible. And to look at CNN's estimate from Friday in particular that there were 4,600 or 4,600 events scheduled in 139 countries involving 4 million people that took to the streets. Um, That's that's pretty powerful. I know, Phoebe, you went to the one in Austin too, right?
1: Yeah, it was yeah, it was a good turnout too. Um I'm really bad at gauging crowds, but I, I was like can can you all to I mean, I don't know, I haven't seen any estimates, but I want to say it was like thousands. <laughs> <That makes laughs> I like hate to Austin. say that because I like don't know the final number, but it was it was a great turnout. Was it more than Donald Trump's inauguration? Absolutely. <laughs> I saw a picture of just like when Mike Pence went to Ireland and it was just like an empty street and then they like showed – and you know, a lot of these like comparative pictures like, you know, take it as you will, but um, I have like zero, uh, you know, issue believing that people in Ireland wouldn't show up for Mike Pence because then they showed like a bunch – like a big crowd when Obama came, but I don't know if it was the same city or like how to compare it, but just – An empty welcome for Mike Pence made me happy. That's all.
2: (laughs) Did you see that? I think it was Iceland he visited, and they put, um, you know, the rainbow flags
1: everywhere just to rub it in.
2: I saw that, and I was like, these people are so kick-ass. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, and I heard, like, the mayor showed up in a bike, and, like, Mike Pence showed up in, like, these just giant, like escalates or whatever it is that the they carry and like all this protection and then like the mayor of Reykjavik was just like biking up and was just like what's up (laughs) (laughs) and it's just like the contrast was just (laughs) uh United States of America um okay well mine is related to the climate movement but um so you know when we talk about like really badass. Like if you've ever seen like the video of Greta speaking to the UN being like, you're cowards, and just like saying it like it is, being awesome. Um, that was pretty much the the like I can tell that students here are inspired by that type of like fearless rhetoric. And so a lot of the speeches were Um, very bold and very brave and and, um in a way that I was like yes like you haven't been jaded by the world which is great um but it's also it's it's inspiring to think about what we can achieve when we don't have all of these like mental blockages you know that that we like get exposed to more and more rules and so we just kind of block progress in that way even within our own minds um but, um, you know, I, I think I've talked about Isra Hersey, but she uh, tweeted out something after the, um, the strikes or you know, this weekend, actually seven hours ago, according to Twitter. Um, and she said, I think it's so important to be fighting against the climate crisis, hence the work that I do. But imagine what it would look like if we had three million students striking against police brutality, indigenous violence some pipelines, environmental racism, etc., There's a reason why the climate crisis became a big issue. When you see white students striking, this issue is important. But when it's black plus brown students, the issue is barely covered. The climate crisis impacts everyone, but we barely talk about the effects black and brown people face. And no, this isn't selfish to want people to care about black and brown people's livelihood. We aren't the ones that are the causes of the crisis and yet black and brown people suffer the most. Everyone should care about black and brown lives and that should become the norm. Um, and I mean, I, you know, I think it just has to be said that, like, we need to think about race when we talk about environment. And, um, it's just nice to also see that, you know, I, I think I was like, um, you know, I think the last time I was just like, oh, I'm thankful for, for journalists of color, or, you know, I'm thankful, but I'm glad that, we have Greta, but I'm also really, really glad that we have Isra, and I'm glad that you know the movement can be as diverse as this country is, um, and I hope that people can really look at the intersections and and really like find you know organizations that that are doing that work and, and support them, right? There's there's a lot of organizations that. Um, have been thinking about this, right, and, and now it's it's getting into the mainstream, but um, it's good for, for what we talk about to always be intersectional. Um, so those that series of tweets um, is my joy because, um, you know, I think uh, she has a big following, and a lot of times when she speaks up on certain issues, she gets a lot of backlash. <laughs> And that's you know I just think about like her mental health and and you know I, I, this with oh, yeah. Greta too like you know Greta got, got bullied because she like couldn't like she kind of lost her track of like her speech and obviously you know she she's living with Asperger's and like um, it makes me sad to see people bullying like little girls like that um, so they're they're taking on a lot to be able to spread their message um, emotionally but. Um, It's. I think it's just a call for us to be as brave as we possibly can be because if sixteen-year-olds can be brave, then like we sure as hell can be brave. Um, So that's 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 it. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome! Yeah.
2: Yeah, I know. I've said in like other conversations that like I'm really looking forward to you know fifty years from now when some of the older generations have passed away and we're fully in charge and we can make the laws and reset everything the way that you know our generation for the most part is much more progressive about but you know people like Greta like why do we have to wait until you know 50 years from now when it's completely ruined and broken we need to be you know much more aggressive and fix it now so I think that's awesome that she's leading the way with that and getting more people involved
1: yeah, I think I saw an estimate. It was like 4 million, maybe, strikers, an estimated yeah, yeah, around the world. Million, yeah, 4 so, million, from CNN. Hell yeah. All right. I'm ready for the takeover. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you, Jamie, for joining us. I'm really happy to hear about your work um, and also just really happy that you're happy doing the work that's like a joy See in you. itself. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me. It's been a pleasure. Alright. Bye,
2: y'all. Thanks, y'all. Bye. Bye.